we start in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses. And we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. Amen. St. Paul, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, before we begin today, um, very sort of brief question I want you to consider. Uh, we are closing in on the end of our first unit, which means we're going to have our little homily time. I already have the rubrics written up for the homily. It should be pretty self-explanatory. Um, I will post the assignment there where my hope is, at least, that you would record it. I'm just listening for the audio. If you prefer to record it, use Google Classroom and just, just upload a video. That's fine. All I'm trying to do is listen to your voice. If you want to put an MP3 or an MP4, whatever is fine, as long as I am able to listen to it. Um, I think you'll just attach it as an attachment like you would um, a Word file, and I should be able to access it through Google. And so it'll be in the assignment. My question is, what is reasonable time for you to be able to compose and execute a three to five minute homily? Once I give you the topics. <laughs> oh, I love to hear that. Then, oh, that's that's what I want to hear. No, way too long. Yes. No, once I tell you, I'm trying to think of what is a just time. So if I say, if I say at 8 a.m. or 9 a.m. today, I'm not saying today. Uh, this is your assignment when it goes out. From the moment it goes out, how long is would be just, not how much you want, how much would be just to complete this? Huh? I think week is probably a little long to do three to five minute homily. I like, I kind of like. If you drop this and we have two days and it's really, it's like the fat part of the week, but if you give us a weekend, that would be great. Okay. A weekend, three days. So well, well, seventy-two hours or whatever. Huh? It depends on what. It's going to depend on sort of when the um, unit ends. Are weekends easier for you to do this than weekdays? Okay, so weekends are better for y'all for this. And then I have it turned on Monday. All right, I will consider that since I am just and merciful. So uh, most of the time I am. Let's move to our second. This is going to be fun today. Uh, our second little part on basic bioethical principles. We look kind of at the sources and overarching ideas last time. Now we want to get into the weeds a little bit more. And some of the stuff you'll see is going to become more or less important later on, uh, very specific ethical principles. Uh, we're going to look at four of them, basically, or I would say principles, distinctions, however you want to call it. Uh, they were written about in the chapter that the chapters that y'all were told to read. So they are going to be totality, the principle of totality, also, as we'll see, there's the word, the principle of integrity, although I think it's a bit confusing. Number two, the principle of double effect. 
cooperation with evil, which we've already seen a little bit, and then the ordinary versus extraordinary means. Also, it could be called proportionate versus disproportionate means, the way of weighing benefits versus burdens. This last one will become more important towards the end of the class. So let's look at, beginning at, looking at this principle of totality. Now, th this is the thing that I was a little confused by in the readings that I've done on this. If you look at, it says, totality and integrity, 3.1, uh, this article here. And the way he, he does it is, as he's writing it, he says the principles of totality and integrity and the principle of totality and integrity, like they're two sides of the same thing. So I did a lot other more research. I think there's a distinction that could be made, but the one that's important, we're just going to call it the principle of totality. So if you want to have a debate on what does integrity mean, we're going to focus on totality. Most of the times they are treated as one. In fact, in Nicanor Arsiakos' book, he doesn't even talk about integrity. So what is the origin of this principle of totality? And it basically goes back to St. Thomas Aquinas. If you want to read more, uh, you can look at, I think it's the Secunda Secunde, question 65. Well, basically, all of the individual organs or parts of the body exist for the sake of the whole person. So we're looking at the entirety of the person, the bodily integrity or totality of the person in relation to the organs. Because the purpose of the part is to serve the whole, any action that damages a part of the body or prevents it from fulfilling its purpose violates the natural order and is morally wrong. So to intentionally damage a part of the body that will eventually or almost immediately hurt the whole becomes morally problematic. This is called the principle of totality. Makes sense. However, a single part of the body or a single organ may be sacrificed if the loss is necessary for the good of the whole person. So we're going to flesh this out. Don't worry. We're going to look at some very concrete examples and see if we can apply this. And if you read this, this uh, principle, the he uses sort of a comparison of individuals in relationship to a society as a whole and how the individual person relates to the society. The society needs all the individual people. However, there are times that a person could become cancerous and he is not very helpful and needs to be removed from society. Uh, we're not going to get into the, the, the weeds of that over the death penalty, but uh, that's basically how it is. Here's another formulation. An individual may not dispose of his organs or destroy their capacity to function except to the extent that it is necessary for the general well-being of the whole body. Destroying an organ or interfering with its capacity to function prevents the organ from achieving its natural purpose, its telos, its end. And so we, we don't want to do that. 
what would be an example where this removal of a body part or a limb or something could potentially be morally justifiable? Appendicitis. Appendicitis, correct. Yeah, so you have this organ, which really doesn't serve much of a function, but still. I absolutely, yeah. So if you have cancer, breast tissue, you can remove. You have a double mastectomy, a single mastectomy. Um, that's acceptable. What if, what if you have a gangrenous limb? You can cut it off. Now, would you want to chop off your healthy limb? No. Although there potentially are some cases where you might. We're going to look at that. So, so the, the the ERDs sort of use. Don't, they don't necessarily use the word totality. The ERDs use the word integrity, but meaning the same thing as totality. This is going to be ERD 29. So we're going to sort of drop, keep drawing back from those ethical and religious directives. All persons served by Catholic health care have the right and duty to protect and preserve their bodily and functional integrity. So not only in the way that the body exists, but the way it functions together, how the parts all rely on each other. The functional integrity of the person may be sacrificed to maintain the health or life of the person when no other morally permissible means is available. So you could say biological is just the reality that you have different organs. Functional is how they work uh, for the good of the body, how they work together, their function. So the footnote on this ERD says this. For example, while the donation of a kidney represents loss of biological integrity, so I'm giving you my kidney, I've lost my biological integrity, I don't have all the integral parts, I only have one kidney, such a donation does not compromise functional integrity, how it works, since human beings are capable of functioning with only one kidney. So what if you had a damaged kidney? Could you then sacrifice the healthy one if you donated it? No, that would be wise. Though. Yeah, probably not. It would, it would affect your functional integrity. So again, the basic principle makes sense. I mean, if you really want to make a super sacrificial thing, possibly you could. But generally, if you're going to end up having to be on dialysis as a result of it, then we end up in some morally problematic areas. So uh, that's basically, I think most of that is kind of common sense. The philosophical principle though is we want to keep the totality of our organs because Jesus put them there for a reason. And then the way that they all function together. And there's going to be one where we really see the importance of functional integrity. So here's the question though. Now that makes it like we can think of all these different ones where you cut off a sick thing or a gangrenous limb. One, one of the questions that was brought up or that Nicanor um, Oshiako brings up is a case that was back in the manuals. Let's say that there is a king who says, I command you to cut off your hand or else I will cut off your head. Would it be morally permissible for that individual, because he is commanded by a legitimate authority, to cut off his hand rather than lose his head? 
Huh? He's not a free person. He's, well, that would be that'd be whether or not he'd be culpable or not. We're just talking about more that's morally acceptable. Now, this is, again, he's quoting this as something that was quoted back and forth in the manuals. Yes. Is this a punishment or just, just because? Like, I, th- I think if I remember correctly, it's just, just because. Well, you might be able to say, like, it, it's the authority of the king, legitimate authority. I don't know. No, the king, the king can't order that. Well, it, not the question whether the king can order it or he can't. That's not the question. The king can order it. Why are people tied up on the trolley tracks in the first place? Well, <laughs> because of evil villains. I don't think you can because you can't do evil to avoid evil, and that's just a purely evil end. Like, there's no, you're not saving anything. You're just destroying your head. You're saving your head. You're destroying well, that's his act. Huh? But that's his act. It's like the... the the Batman movie but you're not killing people you're just cutting off your hand your but you can continue to function without with only one hand you're not losing your functional integrity I don't think this is really qualitatively different than the gangrenous um, limb it's it's just that the disease is the king here I think it's cowardice it's a lack of valor if you cut off your hand. It possibly is. Yeah. But it doesn't. Is it not, it's not addressing the question according to integrity. What Ashiyaka will say, and you could go in your book, your bio, bio, the, the bioethics and biomedicine, uh, and he will say, and he quotes, I didn't look at the article, he will say that this theologian, and I think he agrees with it, that it would be morally justifiable according to the principle of, of totality and integrity because you maintain your body. Now, granted, totally unjust for the king to do this, but I'm just throwing that out there as one of these casuist test cases. But let's get into something that is more interesting and, and again, gives us some very important principles. Because that is sort of an outlier of a case, and I think you could apply a logic on either side to make the argument yes or no, that he should cut off his hand. Is it morally permissible to remove a healthy organ, that's a healthy organ, in order to prevent the progress of a malady which jeopardizes human life? So according to this question, as what Josh would have said, yeah, it would be potentially, if you answered this question in the affirmative, to cut out the hand because the king is the malady. Would it be justifiable? Now, so this is not actually a sick organ. This is a healthy organ, but somehow it's going to help Stop the progress of another malady. So I think that movie, like, what's it called, 27 Hours, where the guy going rock climbing, he falls, his arm is pinned in a rock, and nobody's around. And the only way he gets out of it is he cuts off his arm. Yeah. Yeah, it is. You could say that that would be a gangrenous, that would be a sick limb because it's crushed. Is, is this... If I'm understanding the thing, is this similar to, uh, I know that there are some women who will choose to have double mastectomies before having breast cancer if they've had it in their family before? That, that's, a good que- that's a good question. I haven't thought of that. Let me think about it, and maybe we can apply it here, but we can probably get, let me think about that. That's a good question. I think I know how I would answer that, but let's look at what our good friend Pope Pius XII has to say. Yeah, so, sorry, here. I think it does say that it's okay, or it's, if the removed 
the malady, the, yeah. Correct. And so this is where Pius XII comes in. In 1953, and I think I put the, the whole address if you want to read it, in his address to the Congress of Urology, sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> Pius was talking to these doctors all the time. Uh, there's a one to the histopathology. Congress of Urology, people who study urinary tract. <coughs> he taught that it is not necessary for a body part to be pathological in order to justify its removal or alteration. And he says this because he's given a very specific case that he is trying to address. We're going to look at that very specific case. But he gives us three criteria for justifying any procedure that results in anatomic or functional mutilation. You could apply it in any case, but here we're specifically applying it in cases where you're removing a healthy limb to preserve bodily function, totality, integrity. And the first one is this. And these are going to become important because we're going to want to apply these later when we look at um, body modification, sex reassignment surgeries, and things like that. The retention or function of a particular organ within the whole organism is causing serious damage or constitutes a threat to it. So again, so this organ, this particular healthy organ, let's just use it this way, within the whole organism is causing serious damage or constitutes a threat. So let's say you have a sick kidney and it needs to be removed, a sick appendix that needs to be removed. But the way he's applying it here, it could be a healthy organ. But somehow this organ functioning normally poses a threat to the overall functioning of the body. And we're going to say, what kind of example could we use for this? Potentially the breast example, but I, there's another one that I think we're going to look at that's more specific. Number two, the damage or threat cannot be avoided. The damage or threat cannot be avoided or even notably diminished except by a mutilation in question and whose efficacy is well assured. But basically the only way to fix this is through surgery. The only way to fix it is through surgery. We're gonna to have to mutilate the body. We're gonna to have to cut somehow. And then we have to have a, this can't necessarily be a um, experimental surgery. We have to have a pretty good assurance that this is going to work. Which is interesting. I'm reading this interesting book on gene therapy right now and I'm just questioning how this, we may talk about it a little bit later on, how this would apply to inserting genes into your body to be able to kill certain things. What kind of procedure? Because there's a procedure here that's not cutting on you, just inserting gene, we're inserting different types of T cells into your body to be able to kill cancer. Well, I guess it could be an all medicine, but here he's specifically talking about a mutilation in question. But yeah, I think maybe you could apply any procedure. But number three, it is reasonable to expect that the negative effect will be compensated for by the positive effect. So it is reasonable to expect that the negative effect of the surgery, of cutting off or removing a limb, will be compensated for by the positive effect. That even though there's, the good is going to outweigh the evil, the, the help is, the benefit is going to outweigh the harm, 
put to the body. So this could apply to any type of anatomical or functional mutilation. Pius XII writes, so this are three points. The retention of the organ is causing serious damage or constitutes a threat to the whole body. Number two, it really can't be avoided without some type of surgery or bodily mutilation. And number three, the good that we hope to get from it outweighs the harm of the removal of the, the limb or the organ. Pius recognizes, though, in some cases, a healthy organs. Now, that would be, uh, this is what we're talking about, a, like a, a sick organ. But here, a healthy organ's normal, natural functioning might threaten the health or life of the whole body. Yes? Does this all um, come with you under, like, just like the, I guess, like the background understanding that you know it will be a good effect, or is this, can this also be applied in cases where you're like, it may work, it may not? Well, I think you have to have a pretty good assurance, but this is going to come down to what we're going to talk about next time on prudence. Okay, like, yeah. No, like, is it, this not being like these principles don't apply that you need to know that No, no. But the most you're going to have is sort of like a moral certitude. Gotcha. Yeah. So this is what he says. The deci- he says, the decisive point here is not that the organ which is amputated or rendered incapable of functioning must be itself diseased, but that its retention or functioning either directly or indirectly brings about a serious threat to the whole body. So th- this is the good. It's easy to understand this mutilation if the organ or the part is sick or gangrenous or whatever. But here is a healthy functioning organ that poses a threat to the whole body. I think in the double mastectomy, you could say, because of our understanding of genetics, there's a higher chance of you getting cancer, you could remove it to prevent this from happening. What's the example of um, removing lymph nodes for people who have third and fourth stage cancer and it's a vehicle for um, transporting cancer? So Correct, exactly, yes, it is. Uh, yes? We are going to have a whole class on that. So just, we're getting to it. We're going we're gonna to literally have a whole class on it. Organ donation, organ transfer. Yeah. You guys another similar one would be like tonsils. Like some people, I mean, usually it's with a problem, but some people kind of remove them when they're young because it's easier recovery. Correct. I think it's another, that's a great one, yeah. But who knows the example that Pius is actually talking about here? If anybody of you... Uh, Circumcision is another. That, 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 we're going to talk about this a little bit later on. This is all going to be on the bodily mutilation. Let me get to what the example is. Y'all are not. If y'all don't know it, you're not going to guess it. No. What he's talking about is this: a bilateral archaeectomy. Do you know what orchids are? Your orchids, your testicles. Okay. So this is the case. There's a patient with prostate cancer. Okay, is a patient with prostate cancer. They do not want this cancer to spread. And this is back in the 50s before they had all the little putting radiations in your prostates and all that. The testicles produce hormones that can increase the cancer spread. The testosterone or whatever else comes from the testicles. Somehow it increases the cancer spread. So the question is, you have normal functioning testicles. K- 
can one remove the testicles? And again, you see why this becomes a tricky issue, unlike the breasts or the tonsils, because you're dealing with sexual organs, and we're going to talk about that. Does, is this acceptable? To remove the testicles because they're healthy, but their healthy functioning produces a hormone that increases the chance that the cancer will spread from the prostate to the rest of the body. What? I, I would say no, because it's not, the, the connection is not super direct. If you're not eradicating the cancer by doing this, you're maybe possibly increasing the or decreasing the chance of it spreading. That doesn't seem like the, I mean, even just from a basic cost-benefit analysis, it doesn't make sense, but um, yeah. Yeah, and kind of, kind of jumping on that, I, I would say that maybe it would be permissible if there was a chance that with more time it could be cured, but with this, there's still, especially in the 50s. Yeah, that's also, but this is also part of what we're going to look at when it comes to prudence. Different, to cut off a limb now would be imprudent, but... 500 years ago, because you have a broken compound fracture, it would be very prudent. So we're just like, I don't know what the status of this is now, but let's just say we're in the 50s. I don't know how things have changed since then. What would Pius say? Well, I think first principle, it checks the box. Um, if it's um, taking away the breath that uh, affects the overall function of the body. I think two and three are just kind of gray areas that you can't guarantee is a positive effect while well, the negative. And if the mutilation or like if the damage or the threat is totally unavoidable, um, I mean, if you're diagnosed, I guess then that would check off number two. But but who would okay? Who would be the persons to 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 your, weigh in on this? The doctor would, yeah. So the doc, you're going to look at the ex, the, ex, the experts. Prudential the, the prudential decision is going to be I'm going to talk to an expert, and I'm going to talk to my urologist. Get a second opinion if you need. And let's say that the urologists say yes. This is what is necessary. With no other information, given the resource at the time, you know, just trusting this person, then I guess you, it would be morally acceptable. Mm -hmm. By the way, say obviously you have to weigh in if he has a wife and other things, and what time of life it is, like just for other reasons. Th those will also be true, but the fact is, he might be young, but he'll be dead, quite possibly. And he wouldn't have any children, and he'd love a wife. The damage of leaving a wife rather than maybe not being able to have any more children. I mean, the key here is we're not doing the double oreectomy because of contraceptive purposes. We're not trying to do that. That's going to be the principal double effect. What would Pius's answer be? Pius, applying the, 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 the criteria here, would say it does not require a body part to be diseased or pathological to justify its amputation if it's normal functioning, exacerbates a pathology in another part of the body. So his answer is yes, you could remove them. You could. Now granted, maybe in the past 70 years, there's been some advances that I don't know about, but according to the knowledge he had here, he's talking to the urologists and the urologists are bringing up a question like, hey, we know that we're not supposed to be, you know, cutting off testicles, but, but the fact is that as far as we understand at that time, this is the only way to stop the, the, the growth. And it's much better for you to not be able to produce children than be dead. And so their healthy functioning, according to him, yes, it is acceptable.
And that's what he'll say in the uh, his dialogue. Yes. Is there any discussion uh, with, with Jesus's um, um, hyperbolic language in the Sermon on the Mount about your eye causes you to sin, you out? Um, is there any moral, um, you know, like the origin story? You know, Which is probably not true, but. Of of I, that's a good question. I I don't I don't here we're talking more medical, but potentially you could because particularly what pious, well, possibly I need to think about that. I, I probably would say it would be a harder argument. However, pious does make an allusion to some of this, uh, but I'm not going to answer that. I can't answer that question. So the thing is, is that what about that? He brings it up in the, the, the argument or the, his, his address. What about the removal of sexual organs? What about the removal of sexual organs like the testicles, hysterectomy, whatever? We've got to make a distinction. The first is it's therapeutic. The removal of a cancerous uterus or testicles in the above case. It's therapeutic. We're doing it because we are preserving a greater bodily totality or integrity. Versus contraceptive, an intentionality to destroy the generative function. So, for instance, the doctor says, hey, you have this heart condition. And if you have another baby, you have uh, like a 90% higher rate of having a heart attack and dying. We need to remove your, your we do a hysterectomy. Well, why? The, 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 the. The ovaries and everything are totally functional and they're good. It's just in order to prevent a, a further possible evil. But when it comes to the sexual organs, unlike maybe removing breasts or some other things to stop a, a future disease or tonsils, because of the sacredness of the marital act, because of the teaching against contraception, this would not be acceptable. However, we will look at this when we talk about, we're having a class on sterilization, on vasectomy, on hysterectomies, we're going to look at that very, very specifically. And what uh, the, the big debate over here is a few documents over the course of the past 30 years, since 93, that have come out from the CDF on the validity of hysterectomies, when a hysterectomy could be acceptable. But I don't want to jump the gun on that because we're going to get into that in reading those documents. We're going to look more at organ donation too. But I think what the, the question about organ donation is the difference between organ selling, selling your organs. We're going to look at that and how that really does exploit the poor. What's the difference between potentially selling a kidney because you need money versus selling your eggs, which I think is going to come into the same uh, distinction between generative, contraceptive versus non and just simply therapeutic. But in general, I, I think this distinction here to remove a healthy organ to sell will generally not be acceptable. But we could talk more about it later. Kidneys are fine. I mean, hey, you can give up a kidney as long as you don't need to necessarily go on dialysis because you have two of them that you could function. Could you donate your liver or your pancreas? Probably not, because you need that to function. Um, so. These are 
these are things. Now, someone could say, well, could you donate an eyeball? You could still see just with one eye. Could you donate your ear? Now, granted, the real question is, what, like, like, let's say they, they could remove your cochlea in one ear, where you could hear a book. Could you do that to help somebody? The real question is, which was really interesting, the guy, we brought in a guy who works with, last year, who works with organ donation. And one of the guys brought up the question, could you donate your uterus? Like, or maybe even just donating donating one ovary or something. I don't know. I, let's say it is. Let's say it becomes medically possible. I don't know. There are there are there is stuff on the internet about it, about whether or not you could. Whether there are certain things that are whether they're going to be possible or not. Most all the stuff we're talking about today wasn't possible 200 years ago, 300 years ago. And so, but these same basic principles are going to apply. So basically, is yes, you can remove a limb if it's unhealthy, if it's going to affect the whole entire body, and if it's healthy, if somehow it's going to affect the overall bodily integrity, and it's really the only way you can do it, and you expect the good to outweigh the bad. Now, but here's something interesting, that, that when it comes to, and Pius talks about this, he alludes to it, not just physical integrity, we're not just talking about our, our, our bodily integrity, but it's almost our personal integrity that includes our mental and emotional states, too. Integrity focuses on maintaining basic human capacities. So this is the thing about integrity. And a hierarchical and provides a hierarchical ordering of higher functions over lower functions for the use in decision making. So not only do we have to decide whether, how does your reason and your ability to, to think, if that is impaired, how would that impact a, a procedure that would impact your ability to reason or feel emotions, how would that affect your overall integrity as, as a person? So it kind of, that, that he doesn't get into it a lot, and, and I think it would be very interesting to, to bring up some cases and potentially, I think this is where you could say, could you bring up moral integrity? Is that a possibility? Uh, I don't know. Um, but these are great questions. This is why we are giving principles. This is all put this under the file of things to discuss over beer. Well, this may be a little bit off topic, but that guy that just had a baboon heart, mm -hmm. had, a, had a bad heart, so they put a baboon heart in to see if he could, how long he'd live. Was that, the church approved that? Yeah, the church would. I think, yeah. We're, we'll get into that a little bit later on when it comes to organ donations. What about donations from pig hearts or a pig valve in your heart? If it's going to help the animal, you're taking it from an animal, as long as you don't touch the animal before you get it, but it's going to help preserve our own integrity. The question then becomes, what about synthetic cells? What about when you can 3D print certain body parts that put into your body? Yeah, breast, yeah, yeah. These are all, we're going to get into that. So let's go to the principle of double effect. That's number two. This can be traced to Aquinas also. It can be applied when a certain action chosen for a good purpose has negative or harmful consequences. And yet there are so many distinctions we can make here. We're not going to make all of them. I just want to be able to paint broad strokes. I think we discussed this a little bit last year, but it's important to know here. So, 
uh, hold on, I think I, yeah. Okay, there are four criteria for an action to be morally acceptable, okay? For this principle of double effect. The action must be morally good or indifferent as to object, motive, and circumstances. So basically, the three parts of the moral act that we looked at, you, you can't choose something which is inherently evil or something which is inherently good, but for evil purposes, for your further intention. Number two, the bad effects may only be tolerated, not directly willed. So let's say that, that this bad effect means that you're going to in, endure some type of, you know, increased pain in your body. You can't be an evil doctor and say, ooh, I want you to in, endure this evil. You can't have that. The good effect is not produced by means of the bad effect. You could apply, don't do evil, so that good may come from it. The good effect is, is what produces the bad effect, not the other way around. We're going to see how this works and plays out in a couple of examples. There is a proportionally grave reason for permitting the bad effect. So this is proportionality, and prudence is going to have to judge. Proportionality forbids the toleration of effects that are not seriously proportionate to the good effects that are expected from the action. So, yes, there is a proportionally grave reason for permitting the bad effect. It's a serious enough reason for permitting this bad effect. You're choosing it. We're going to see, I'm going to give you two examples. Who knows the classic example of applying this? Okay. Yeah, except we're going to get to that, but even a more classic example of that. Not the drop of the bomb. It would be, it would be um, administering morphine or painkillers. Okay, let's say medicine. The end, the increase of life. Okay, at the end of life. Let's say someone is dying of this horrendous cancer, incurable. Well, we believe in the value of palliative care. We, we want to. We don't think, well, I just offered up. We want to reduce suffering. But the fact is we know that as you continue to increase, let's say, morphine, the doses towards the end, it may hasten death. Now, granted, you may think that it's a good idea, but still, any kind of administering of painkillers, particularly morphine, could hasten some type of death. So, let's say the case with this applying morphine itself. Apply this, this principle of double effect. So could, knowing that you will potentially hasten death, how would you apply the principle of double effect or the rule of double effect? So, the action must be morally good or indifferent as to object, motive, and circumstances. So let's say you're the object. What are you willfully choosing? I am choosing to administer this medicine in order to relieve pain. My intention is I am a hospice nurse. I love my people. And the circumstances are you're in hospice care and uh, you're, you're dying and your family approves that everything is good. So that's the first one. We're, we're, we're not putting a bullet to your head. You know, we're not murdering you. 
we're administering medicine, pain relief medicine. The bad effect may only be tolerated, not directly willed. How would you apply that? Yeah, to ease the pain. You're, what, you, what, what, are you, what is the, the, the bad effect of hastening death? It's not something you're willing. You're not trying to kill them, but you're tolerating it for the greater good of what? The relief of this horrible pain. The good effect is not produced by means of the bad effect. Check. Check. Yeah. So. Yeah, the possible death of the patient is not the means by which morphine achieves the good of relieving pain. So it's not like, ah, oh, morphine, morphine isn't a, is a, is a killing drug. You're not directly killing them to receive the, get rid of the pain. And finally, given the intense and severe pain and otherwise imminent death, there is a proportionally grave reason for permitting the risk of hastening death. So if this was just somebody who, you know, I sprained my ankle, and I'm going to give you, no, that's, 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 those circumstances don't warrant it. There's not a proportion of reason. So according to this principle of double effect, or the rules of double effect, it would be acceptable. It would be acceptable. Now granted, you know, prudence is going to have to decide how many milligrams of morphine, how often it, you, you give that, but that's going to be up to the doctor or the nurse to decide, and we're assuming that the doctor or the nurse has a good intention and knows what they're doing. Which, just warning, sometimes they don't know what they're doing. You just be careful with that. Um, what about ectopic pregnancy? So ectopic pregnancy, ectopic basically means out of place. So here is when the little embryo is going down the fallopian tube, it gets stuck there. Now... The truth is, if you read about this, it often resolves itself. So you're not, you know, all of a sudden you see it, it often resolves itself. But what would happen is, is if the child would continue, the embryo would continue to grow, it would burst the fallopian tube, the, the great risk of death for the mom to bleed out, and of course, for the child to die. Is, and so there's a procedure, there are different types of procedures but there is a procedure, I think it's called a salabingectomy, where basically the doctor goes and snips the fallopian tube on either side of the, the, the embryonic human, removes it, and stitches it back together, and removes the, 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 the embryo from the womb encased in the part of the fallopian tube. There are other types that can also happen, but this is the one. Is this morally acceptable? The embryo will die. Yeah. Yeah. So as long as you're not going in there and just cutting the baby in half, that's different. Or you're injecting some type of fluid that would would, would dissolve the the embryo. Yes, John. I forgot what they're called. There, there can be a sort of. I believe there can be some type of a chemical that kills the child or you would directly go and yeah and kill the child yeah you could i I don't i'm again i'm not a doctor but there are there ones the ones that would be unacceptable be the ones that you would go in you directly intend to kill the child in order to save the mom's life so i don't know if this is a thing we're capable of yet but like 
are they pop? Is it possible that they can remove the child, kind of like like how they remove, like they store embryos? Well, right now, right now, we do not have the capacity to store the embryo. Right? We may in the future. We do not have the capacity to. So, would it be acceptable? The answer would be yes. It would be yes, because you're not you're doing a surgical procedure. It's not an evil. Just it's a surgical procedure. Your intention is not to cause any harm. I'll let Father Tad explain it here. When ectopic pregnancy does not resolve by itself, a morally acceptable approach would involve removal of the whole section of the tube on the side of the woman's body where the unborn child is lodged. Although this results in a reduced fertility for the woman, the section of the tube around the growing child has clearly become pathological and constitutes a mounting threat with time. This threat is addressed by the removal of the tube with the secondary and unintended effect that the child within it will die. So it's not a direct abor- abortion, but and for the greater good of saving the life of the mom, even though you're tolerating, you're tolerating the effect, it's not what you're intending, you're not willing it, but it would be acceptable, this specific type of procedure. Removal of the section of the fallopian tube to save the life. No, we're not. There'd be no ever intending a direct abortion. We'll, we're going to look more at comp, pregnancy complications later because we're already kind of so far behind, and I want to be able to knock out at least cooperation with evil. Number three. Now, again, we saw this some in the introduction of morals, and we're not going to get into the discussions here, even though I bring up examples because we're going to get into them much later on. Remember the distinction between material and formal cooperation. You all remember that? And remote and proximate. It affects your cooperation in the evil at hand and your moral culpability. In different cases, what about vaccines and the use of material with illicit origin? Can we cooperate in that? A nurse working in a hospital where they do vasectomies, if she's asked to do a vasectomy, could she say no? And then, of course, the larger thing that's not necessarily bioethical is voting for a directly a pro-abortion candidate. Could one vote for a candidate who is pro-abortion if you are not doing it directly, if you're not formally advocating for abortion? We can discuss that later. Prudence and conscience is guiding the decision because I really want to kind of try my best to land and end with the 10 minutes we have left with ordinary versus extraordinary means, which we're going to get into later, but I want to be able to talk about it now. You're going to see a lot more about this. And the ERDs mention it in several places, which is basically weighing benefits and burdens of a certain procedure or medicine or whatever. Either the person is going to have to do it or they're surrogate. So this goes back to free and informed consent, autonomy, It's going to be the subject, the individual, the autonomous individual ultimately has to make the decision. He gets input from the doctors and nurses, and under a case where a paternalism of the doctor is not having to come into play, we're talking about, hey, they have to make up this decision themselves. We have an obligation to use ordinary means, or ordinary or proportionate means to preserve his or her life. 
Proportionate means are those, this is ERD 56. Proportionate means are those that the judgment of the patient offer a reasonable hope of benefit and do not entail an excessive burden or impose excessive expense on the family or community. So not only are we talking about bodily burden, we're talking about financial burden and maybe a burden on the family. So these are proven to be successful, are customarily used, and offer reasonable hope of benefit. So it could be a certain procedure. It could be a certain type of medicine. It could even be the question of whether or not you should have dialysis or not. There are also the times when something ordinary potentially could become extraordinary or disproportionate. Prudence is going to have to decide that. Time and place can also alter it, as we gave for the example of amputation. Would, would right now it be proportionate to amputate a limb because of a broken arm? No. 500 years ago, possibly. During war, possibly. All of these things are going to have to be factored in to the prudential decision. ERD 57 says a person may forego extraordinary or disproportionate means of preserving life. It's up to the judgment of the patient or his surrogate to make the decision. And the burdens, as we've seen, and the benefits can be on different levels and have to be weighed. What are the criteria for deserting, discerning burdens? I'll give you four, and it's from this book. Great effort to use, like I gotta drive 30 miles to go get dialysis every day or I've got to do this procedure where I've got to be in the hospital for seven hours a day. Severe pain that it's going to hurt a lot to do. Exquisite means or great expense that it's some like really weird type of treatment or it's going to cost you a lot of money or you're repugnant to it, psychological factors. Whatever the decision that the patient makes, his or her conscience has to be respected. ERD 32, no person should be obliged to submit to a healthcare procedure that the person is judged with a free and informed conscience not to provide a reasonable hope of benefit without imposing excessive risks and burdens. When it says the person, is that the patient? The, yeah, the patient, the patient or their surrogate. Here again, Prudence and conscience are king. Here are a few examples. A ventilator. For a person, let's say there's a person who gets in an accident and is in a coma, but we know that it's going to come out of it, and they want to put it on the vent in order for them to be able to rest. Is that ordinary care? Yeah, it is. And, and really, when you begin to weigh the burden for the benefit, it's going to be very hard for you to say in conscience, and again, we're going to talk about properly farming our conscience, that you would deny that. However, but this is also the, the decision to give treatment or to remove treatment, too. Or what about a person who is brain dead and has cancer and there's no real hope for benefit? Can you remove that ventilator? Has it become excessive? Yes, we could say it's a disproportionate, it's a, a burden. The question of dialysis becomes a real thing, not only to get on dialysis or to remove dialysis. The question of chemotherapy. 
you know, I, I heard of a case recently where, like, the person has stage four cancer. All it's going to do is maybe, it's not going to really prolong their life. It may alleviate a little pain. But yet, you have this horribly invasive chemotherapy. You can choose not to do it. Can you choose not to take an aspirin or choose not to take very basic medicine? No. Now, let's say that you, there's no way to give you the medicine. Well, then maybe that becomes a problem, but it's going to be addressed on a case-by-case basis. But the big question becomes food and hydration, which we're going to look at later. ER Day 58 says, in principle, there is an obligation to provide patients with food and water. It's ordinary, including medically-assisted nutrition and hydration for those who cannot take food orally, including the PEG-2. Again, we'll discuss more about that a little bit later on. But could there be cases where it becomes too burdensome, where it's not achieving its means? As long as you're not directly willing to kill the person, yes, you you could remove it. And we're going to look at that more later on. But the point is, there are certain things that I think common sense and medical procedures now mean like, yeah, the burden of you taking the shot of penicillin doesn't outweigh the good that you getting over the flu produces. But in a lot of these cases, and particularly in new medical technology, it's going to depend on the prudential decision of the patient. And that's what we're going to look at next time. Prudence and conscience in judging these things and having a well-formed conscience and I think particularly the role the priest will play, because they will come to you for advice of what you can tell them, how you can suggest things to them. And so that's where we're going to look at conscience and virtue, particularly the virtue of prudence. But a lot of these principles will be played out over the course of the semester. And as you can see, so many interesting different topics. We could go down many a rabbit hole, but we won't, but we will start... Uh, on Friday. So there will be the little Monte Carlo quiz. It's not going to be that difficult. There might be. be. That's right. There might be. It depends on how you roll. So look, no panic. I love it. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It was the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.